So I wanted to continue on from our exploration last week of the Second Noble Truth, where we were looking at the cause of suffering, which is... Is there anybody? The co- that, uh, well, Dukkha is the first Noble Truth. The second one is what's the cause of it? Yeah. Anyone remember? Craving, craving, clinging or resisting. So that energy of craving and the Buddha um, identified three specific forms of craving. Craving for sense pleasures, which is what we were exploring this week. And then craving for becoming and craving for non-becoming. So I touched into those briefly last week. Craving for becoming being that desire to be seen, to be recognized, to be acknowledged, to be um, noticed, to take on a particular role or function or identity, to create an identity of some kind, often unconsciously, to try to give ourselves certainty in a world of flux. So it's that sense of wanting to become someone someone stable and fixed often. And then the opposite of that craving for becoming is the craving for non-becoming. So the desire to not exist, to be no one, to be anonymous, to be invisible, to avoid responsibilities often, to not be seen. And in its most extreme form, suicidal ideation and even the attempt to kill oneself are extreme forms of this craving for non-becoming. And there's a huge amount that we could explore in terms of those the interplay of those two. As you may have noticed, they're socially constructed. They play out in our relationships. And I wanted to zoom in a little bit to a particular aspect of craving for becoming and non-becoming, one that I think is most relevant for this theme of transforming fear into fearlessness. And that's our tendency to get what caught in what's known as um, comparing mind, which Deborah just referenced. All the different ways that we assess ourselves in relation to each other, becoming someone, becoming no one, based on our distorted perceptions of ourselves and others. So even as you're listening, or even right now, you might notice, oh, they seem like they're getting it. I don't know if I'm getting it. Am I really getting it? She looks really tuned in. I don't know that, you know, that you can you recognize that sort of background comparing, almost constant scramble to get some kind of security through social comparison But the downside is it feeds a lot of our social anxiety. And again, with all the other forms of fear that we've been exploring, it is a byproduct of us being social animals. And it's a fact that our survival is dependent on belonging to a group, to a tribe, to a community. Because of the truth of interconnectedness, we can't survive by ourselves totally by ourselves for very long. So as human beings, we are hardwired to be sensitive to other people, to be sensitive to our relationships with others. 
But as we've been seeing, anxiety and fear have a way of almost taking on a life of their own that goes way beyond the initial stimulus. And if we're not able to bring mindfulness and kindness and compassion to them, comparing mind can easily go into overdrive. And so we're constantly assessing whether we're being accepted or whether we're being rejected, whether we fit in, whether we belong And at the same time, constantly assessing how others are doing, getting a sense of them. Are they a potential threat? Are they a potential ally? Are they neutral? And even back in the Buddha's time, this comparing mind was recognized as a a pretty insidious form of mental suffering. And the Buddha referred to it as mana, M-A-N-A, This Pali word mana is usually translated as either comparing mind or conceit. But if we use the English word conceit, we need to keep in mind that in English, the word conceit usually means thinking oneself superior to others. But in the Buddha's understanding, thinking oneself inferior to others is equally a form of conceit, as is thinking oneself equal to others. So better than, worse than, same as, all of these are classified as forms of conceit, of comparing mind. And just to zoom out a little bit in relation to this word mana, it also refers to the mind, to what we might think of as the intellect. And in the Buddha's teachings, he used three different words to talk about mental functioning. So vijnana is one word that's usually translated as consciousness, sort of high-level awareness. And then citta, usually translated as heart-mind, more has more of a flavor of our emotional responses to things. And then manas or mano, mana, all these words are referring to what in English we would normally think of as the intellect, And it's that function of the mind that discerns, distinguishes, perceives, makes separate and compares, measures, assesses, and so on. So mana has this very clear sense of measuring and comparing and conceptualizing. And this tendency to do that can create a lot of suffering when we bring it into the realm of ourselves and others. So we get fall into this tendency to compare ourselves to others, but also to compare ourselves to ourselves, who I was in the past. I was better then, or I was worse then, or I need to become better in the future, or I need to get rid of something now. So all this all of this is revolving around a sense of someone who needs to be something. And we can see, if you remember back to the fear lists that we produced in the first week, just how much of those anxieties were based around comparing mind and a really painful sense of lack. So I went back and read them again the other night. And yeah, so many of them were about that. And I thought, well, I'll just read the ones that are about comparing. But basically, that was most of them. (laughs) So then I thought, that's going to take too long. I'll just, so I decided to 
for the sake of brevity, just choose the sentences that had the word enough in them, generally not enough. So I'll read you a, a fairly random sample from what we came up with. Fear that I'm not open enough to the Dharma. Fear of not having enough time to practice meditation. Not meditating enough. Not enough time to do all that I wish to do. A constant feeling that there isn't enough time in the day to get everything done. Fear that I'm not good enough. Fear of not being smart enough. Fear of not being enough. Not having enough money. Not having enough skills. Not having enough energy. Not being good enough. Fear related to a state of not being good enough. Being judged by others as not being good enough. Fear of not being good enough. Fear that I'm not good enough and can't contribute meaningfully to the dire state of the planet. (laughs) Did you hear how often? And that's just an abbreviated sample. There were many more that had that same sense but didn't literally use the words not good enough. So how do you feel when you hear that? Yes, <laughs> I'm not alone. The un- a kind of relief to see just how universal it is. I'm not the only one who struggles with this deep sense of inadequacy. I've been playing with this idea for a while that um, yeah, it is good enough. It is good enough. Good enough. Yes. Good enough. Yes. Not only perfect, but good enough. <laughs> yeah. Which I was thinking when you were speaking. Yes. And I, rather than stepping back, just get good enough. So subverting that underlying feeling of not good enough and just saying, this is good enough. Beautiful. You're jumping ahead of the game. So thank you. (laughs) Thanks for leading in. Because what you just described, that process of one, being able to hear, Mm. you know, even bring it to the surface so that we can hear and see it, that's wisdom. And then making the choice to subvert it by saying, actually, it is good enough, also is wisdom. And you could say compassion, because you're trying to relieve the the distress of that feeling of inadequacy. So because these patterns are so deeply ingrained, we really do need to bring both wisdom and compassion to bear on them. And the wisdom piece is really seeing just the root delusion that that comparing mind is rooted in, a sense of it constructs or constructs or fixates a solid fixed sense of me, this is who I am, and you, that's who you are, you know, permanent, unchanging, solid sense of me, or as... So all of that comparing mind is enhancing that tendency to make ourselves into a fixed identity and often an unpleasant one. So as one Zen teacher describes it, we have this tendency to relate to ourselves as that little piece of excrement at the center of the universe. So there's that paradox of the kind of narcissistic but unworthiness. And often this comparing mind is used to strengthen that. Perhaps not quite so extreme, but 
I think we can understand that that tendency. So in the Buddha's teachings, this delusion is we're not seeing the truth of impermanence, that we're constantly changing and shifting. So when we did the exercise last week of looking at mind states, and I asked you to just sit together and name your mind states, I think most of you could see how much they were changing just in three short minutes. And then particularly when we went back and forth, how if one person named their mind state, your mind state immediately shifted in response to what was said. So in all of that, how can we say, oh, I'm in a bad mood, when in those three minutes everything was constantly shifting and changing and responding, and yet we tend to fix or fixate on one particular aspect that reinforces a pre-existing self-view a lot of the time. And that's part of the challenge with mana, that it tends to be a self-perpetuating, self-reinforcing. So some of us have a default to feel inferior, inadequate. Some of us have a default to feel superior, and so on. So instead of just seeing um, that each of us also has completely unique conditioning, so comparing on oneself to someone else, again, is diluted because their conditioning over their lifetime is absolutely unique, just as is yours. And so to think that, you know, if only I was, you know, I should be more like that, it's just impossible. And so it's really a big waste of energy. And if you think, you know, if I buy an apple and wish that it was a mango... <laughs> There's no way an apple can be a mango. The conditions weren't there to produce an apple, uh, to produce a mango. They produced an apple. But if I'm eating an apple constantly wishing that it was a mango, then that's a setup for delusion. And yet, you know, that's a simplistic analogy, but often that's what we're doing, assuming that we should be more like X, Y, or Z when those conditions aren't there. And that Lack takes us away from appreciating our own appleness or our own mangoness and what, how we are a unique expression of our life's conditions. So there's a lot more that I could say about this manner, um, but I wanted to, uh, just to talk more about that and one of the antidotes to it. And so, if you want a fuller picture of how comparing mind plays out, I'm including a link this week to a, quite a long talk by an ex-Australian Dharma teacher who's based at Spirit Rock, Sally Armstrong. Some of you may know of her. She's given quite a comprehensive talk about this, so you can listen to that this week if you'd like more information. It just seems to have turned out that each week we've been talking about one of the noble truths and then finding one of the Brahma-viharas that works both as an antidote and as an ally in preventing those unskillful states from arising in the first place. So this week I wanted to talk about mudita, appreciative joy, which as some of you know is the third of these four Brahma-vihara qualities. And in my own practice experience, mudita has been a very powerful antidote to 
uh, mana to comparing mind and also a support in helping it not to even come up in the first place. And yet of these four Brahmavahara qualities, this one gets the least attention. You know, I, a few years ago I looked on Dharma Seed and there was over a hundred pages of talks about metta and 18 on mudita. And part of me wonders if that is because mudita is orienting towards what's going well. It's orienting towards happiness, to success. And because of our mind's inbuilt negativity bias, we tend to overlook what's going well and fixate much more on what's difficult, painful, threatening, challenging, and so on. So mudita is sometimes dismissed as a kind of a lightweight practice. But as I hope you'll discover this week, it's actually very powerful. So as I said, mudita is what happens when our basic metta or goodwill turns towards happiness, success, good fortune. But even right there can be a, it can be a stretch precisely because of the unconscious poverty mentality that many of us have a sense of lack, of inadequacy, of not being good enough, when we're coming from that sense of lack, if somebody else has something going well for them, we can assume, oh, I'm missing out. It's landed over there, so there's not enough to go around, and it's there, so I'm not getting it. And because we live in such an individualistic and capitalistic society, most of us have some degree of competitiveness in our conditioning. So it might not at first come easily to celebrate other people's happiness and good fortune. But as the Dalai Lama famously said, if we can learn how to have happiness for other people's happiness, then our possibility for happiness grows 7 billion to 1. 7 billion is the approximate number of people in the world today. So how is it usually taught? Traditionally, it's taught like metta and compassion by silently reciting phrases that are orienting the mind in that direction. Traditional phrases are things like, may your happiness and joy continue. May your happiness never leave you. May your happiness continue to grow. And traditionally, those phrases are offered to a sequence of people, beginning with a good friend whose life is going well, and then a benefactor, then a neutral person, then a so-called enemy, and then all beings. And you don't know if you noticed there was one being left out of that sequence. Anybody notice who was left out? Self. Yes. Interesting that in traditional mudita practice, we're instructed not to do it for ourselves. And when I first heard that, it didn't make sense to me because as we've been hearing everywhere else in the Buddha's teachings, we're not supposed to make distinctions between self and others. And all the other Brahma-Vihara practices are offered equally quote, to all as to oneself. And so I started to explore this. I asked a Pali scholar, what does this word mudita actually mean? And he said, it just literally means gladness. So originally it didn't have that sense of gladness for another person. It was just more sort of general 
gladness or gratitude or appreciation. And when I read the kind, the way the practices were offered in the time of the Buddha, it was more the radiating energy method that um, some of you may be familiar with. So these are the words from the actual sutta. Here, practitioners, one dwells pervading one direction with one's heart filled with gladness. Likewise, the second direction, the third, the fourth, so above, below, and all around. One dwells pervading the entire world, everywhere and equally, with one's heart filled with gladness, abundant, grown great, measureless, free from enmity and free from distress. So I'd like to highlight that word measureless because we're going to come back to that later. But about the same time that I was exploring this in my own practice, I found an interesting sutta teaching that the Buddha gave to a layman by the name of Mahanama. Some of you may know. Any of you know this sutta given to Mahanama? He was apparently a layman who, quote, lived in a household that was dusty and crowded with children. And he went to the Buddha and said, basically, you give a lot of teachings for monks, but how about you give some teachings that are suitable for a layperson like me? And the Buddha said to him, okay, well, he didn't say okay, but (laughs) whatever the Pali word for okay was, he said, there are six things that you should contemplate every day. And if you do this every day, your mind will become concentrated, will head straight. And in one of the suttas, it said you will basically um, attain complete freedom of heart and mind. So that got me interested. And the six things he was instructed to contemplate were, one, the good qualities of the Buddha, the good qualities of the Dharma or the teachings, the good qualities of the Sangha, the people who are following the teachings, The next two really got my interest. One, Mahanama's own generosity. And then Mahanama's own good qualities. And then lastly, the good qualities of the devas or spirit beings. So the four of those are fairly traditional. But what really got my interest was that invitation every day, cultivate, contemplate your own generosity and your own good qualities. And that was quite, uh, at the time that I read it, was quite a confronting idea to me because of this deeply ingrained unworthiness. And I think cultural conditioning that many of us have to be very hard on ourselves and even to think that we somehow deserve to suffer. And it put on top of our individual conditioning a whole pile of society-wide conditioning So, for example, I grew up in England and New Zealand, and in both of those countries, you do not blow your own trumpet. It's a lot of taboo against, and in the U.S. they talk about big noting, you know, you don't up yourself, amp yourself. And in Australia, of course, we have tall poppy syndrome. And something similar in Japan, apparently there's a saying, the nail that sticks out gets hammered flat. So, you know, we're not a lot of societies, there's a lot of conditioning that you don't go anywhere near your good qualities because you're going to get conceited. And so that was my fear when I decided to take this on as a practice. 
because it was such a going against the grain practice, I decided to experiment with it. And I thought, but, you know, I'll have to be careful because I might get inflated. But I actually found the opposite. It was very surprising that when I could acknowledge more of the whole spectrum of who I am, not just the inadequacies and the deficiencies, but there are some good qualities in here, when I could just get a basic felt sense of that, when I encountered good qualities in other people, I felt a much deeper sense of appreciation and even kinship rather than this unconscious flinching or um, comparing mind or mana. And the more I explored my, quote, own good qualities, the more I realized I couldn't really say they were mine. You know, they came from my society, my family, my teachers, my Dharma practice, a response in the moment to whoever was before me. So I couldn't fully take ownership of them and make them into an identity, but I could appreciate them when they arose and acknowledge them rather than dismiss them or diminish them. So in this way, it felt like it really helped her relinquish, release this habit of mana. And coming back to the understanding of these Brahma-Viharas as measureless, the Pali term for measureless is apamana. So you hear that same word mana in there. Apamana means beyond measure. So apamana, the Brahma-Viharas, as measureless, boundless qualities are very directly antidotes to comparing mind because they take us into those states that are without limits, without edges, without resistance, without identification with self or other. They dissolve that comparing, concocting, identifying, measuring aspect of the intellect. So that's some of the terrain that we're going to be exploring this week and including after we've had a very short break. I'm sorry, we've time's kind of run away on me this week, but I wanted to hear from all of you before we move on to the next phase of our exploration. So thank you for your attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.